0: With that said, if you would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians, we're going to be starting this morning our new series in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I'd like to read that for us. If you need a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the seats in front of you. I do encourage you to, to read along. It will also be on the screen. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's after the book of Galatians, after the Corinthians books, and before Philippians, if you're flipping around looking for it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, uh, which is Paul's rather lengthy and breathless introduction to (laughs) this incredible letter. Paul In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, whether things in heaven or on earth. to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, Children's Church is dismissed as is Crossroads. And I'm going to pray for us and our children as they make their way out. So I I don't mind the background noise if you don't as we lift up our, our little ones to God. Heavenly Father, we pray for your word as it goes out here in these different classrooms and even here in this sanctuary this morning. Lord, would your words speak directly to our hearts this morning? Would you minister to us as you are eager to do? Minister to our children. Meet them, Lord. As a good father who uh, does baby talk with all of us, Lord, you are able to communicate with the little ones. You're even able to communicate to us. Lord, would you speak clearly to us for our building up of faith and our encouragement, we ask humbly in Christ's name. Amen. Well, with, uh, with our children making their way, I did have a, an important update for the church regarding children's discipleship. As many of you know, as, as you've heard, we have, um, a, we have given uh, Stacey Lyons a leave of absence at her request. Uh, to take some time to rest, recalibrate, recoup a little bit uh, after a really difficult season. Um, and part of that recalibration was really for her to reflect on what the Lord would have for her next, whether it would be to return to the ministry uh, or to return maybe in a modified form or to step away for a season. And uh, Stacy has informed the, the elders that she feels the Lord is calling her to step away and to spend time with her family, with particularly with her boys at this critical age. So this is a decision that we both we are both grieved because we are sad to miss her leadership, her presence, and her friendship uh, around the staff table. Uh, but we are also very thankful that God has continued to guide her in this process. And so you will hear more from her next week. Stacy will share with the congregation, and that will give us some opportunity and time. If you're if you have been impacted by Stacy's ministry and leadership, and particularly if our children have as well as you, I would encourage you to take this time this week to write a thank you note. And what we can do is just at our picnic after Stacy gives her announcement, we can just share those cards with her at that time. So I would encourage you to think about what, how has the Lord encouraged you through her ministry. Um, and we're, we'll look forward to see what the Lord does uh, in her this next season and where things will go from there. But with that said, uh, you'll, as I said, you'll, you'll hear more about that next week. Uh, I want to dive into the word at hand, which is Paul's letter. The, the letter to the Ephesians is a letter of great and wonderful mystery. A number of mysteries or aspects of the ministry of mystery of Christ are, are um displayed in this letter, but there's one thing that isn't a great mystery, and that is who wrote the letter and to whom he wrote it. Um, I say that because a lot of ink has been spilled over the question of who wrote this letter and to whom was the letter originally written. So I want to quickly cover this because I want to get to the meat of things, but I also want to address it because, again, it has created some controversy. The the fact is some manuscripts of the Ephesian letter, uh, some of the early manuscripts lack the word at Ephesus, just says the saints and those faithful in Christ, though there's also ancient manuscripts that have at Ephesus. Also, very early in the second century, uh, a controversial church leader named Marcion Uh, described the letter of Ephesians as rather the letter to the Laodiceans. Probably because in Colossians, at the end of that letter, Paul says, after you've read this letter in the church at Colossae, make sure the Laodiceans read it and you all read the letter I wrote to the Laodiceans. Why Marcion thought this letter was that letter, we don't know. But there's also, more strikingly, Paul's apparent impersonal manner in how he relates to the Ephesians in this letter. Paul had a deep, affectionate relationship with the Ephesian church. In fact, he spent, I think, more time at Ephesus than any other location, according to the book of Acts. And when he departed to Jerusalem, there's a very moving scene where he meets with the elders of the Ephesian church and weeps with them. And so there was a deep intimacy and familiarity In contrast to that this letter reads quite impersonal. One, there's a lack of any personal greetings whatsoever, such as we find at the end of Romans or even Colossians. But we should note that that's not, that's not unusual. In Paul's fami- letter to the Thessalonians, with, with whom he had a close and endearing relationship as well, there are no personal greetings. In fact, it seems Paul gives personal greetings to letters, uh, especially in Romans, where he had never visited face-to-face, to make personal connections where he did not have personal acquaintance. So it isn't actually unusual. More unusual is the impersonal manner in which he speaks to them in the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, for this reason, since I've heard of your faith. Well, what do you mean, heard? You were there. Or later in chapter 3, he says, I, Paul, prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard about my ministry. Wait, what? So what's going on here? Well, the prevailing theory is that this was like the letter to the Colossians, an encyclical letter, a letter that was meant to, to go around in a circle, not just one congregation, but a multiplicity of congregations. And so it has a generic form. In fact, it probably went to a number of church plants that came out of the Ephesian churches into the environs and the outskirts of Ephesus. And that would explain Paul's more impersonal manner. But the question of Pauline authorship has also been raised in recent times. Because of some of these factors, did Paul really write this? This letter is unusual. There are no specific issues of a particular congregation that are addressed, like the you see in Galatians or Philippians or even Colossians or even Romans, for that matter. There are no specific congregational problems spoken of. But again, if this is an encyclical letter that made the rounds, that would be understandable. Moreover, some point to the fact that Paul uses some very unique words here that he uses nowhere else in any of his other writings. But Paul was, a, diver- was, a, was a, a gifted writer who had the ability to have a big vocabulary. And if you compare other letters of Paul that are not disputed, like the letter to the Galatians, you find unique words in that letter at the same percentage that you find in the letter to the Ephesians. So there's nothing extraordinary about the unique vocabulary of Ephesians. Moreover, there is no manuscript of Ephesians that doesn't say Paul as the very first word. There's no evidence that this was ever any, uh, any attributed to anyone but Paul. And not only that, extraordinarily, the letter to the Ephesians is the earliest letter attested by the, the church as being Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's the earliest, the earliest witnesses to Paul's authorship to this letter of any other letter from Paul. So this, the evidence that Paul wrote this is overwhelming, it's very strong, and it probably was an encyclical letter to the churches in the Ephesian area. The overall point of the letter isn't just a generic gospel uh, presentation. The peculiar vocabulary Paul uses points to the peculiar emphasis that this letter does have. Though he doesn't address local congregational controversies or or, uh, antagonisms, he does deal with a specific kind of question. Namely, he speaks of God's mysterious purpose that has been revealed and experienced by those who know Christ. That God is, what God is doing in the world is summing up or bringing and reintegrating a fractured universe in Himself, starting first of all with us. And that out of that unity, that profound unity, God is working into the world through Jesus Christ, we are to walk, we are to live out of that unity in love. And we are to stand against those divisive powers. That threatened and shattered the world in the first place. Watchman Nee, a famous Chinese pastor of a previous generation, once famously summarized the book of Ephesians in this term, sit in the heavenly glories where Christ is enthroned and where you also are enthroned. Walk in love and stand against the powers and principalities. Sit, walk, stand. Stand. There's another unusual feature of this letter. It begins not with a typical thanksgiving, which is is given in verse 15 and following. It starts with a benediction, verse 3 through 14. Or perhaps better put, a call to worship. It begins with Paul saying, blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a a proclamation and an announcement for y'all to join him in blessing or praising God. Indeed, the argument that Paul gives here in verses 3 through 14 could be summarized this way. God has been so good, and what he's been up to is so amazing. Let's worship him together. Let us be wonderstruck at the tremendous love and grace lavished upon us in Jesus the beloved, and let us praise his glorious grace. This call for praise, the end result of all these things that is thrice repeated in this section is the praise of his glory. Look at verse 6, for instance. We have been predestined for adoption, verse 5, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us or, or graced us, literally, in the beloved. I love that title for Jesus. He is the beloved. Verse 12, likewise, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then verse 14, the whole section ends with, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The whole point of this passage is to awaken us out of our stupor, out of our ho-hum sort of lack of awe of the world we inhabit and the story we find ourselves in and to say, have you considered the story you are actually living? Stand in awe and worship. We bless God by giving him the praise due his great majesty and love. He blesses us, however, by giving us what is not our due. His benevolence, his kindness and love gives us rich grace and mercy. and Which is exactly what Paul goes on to unpack in the remaining verses. So this is the heading. Bless the Father who has blessed us in Christ who has blessed us specifically in the beloved. The first thing he says about that is, we, uh, even as he chose us in him, this language of chosenness is found throughout the New Testament. Paul reminds the Corinthians who were a little bit self-impressed. They, they were trying to like jostle for social position. And Paul reminds them re- Hey, y'all, remember, most of you were not that impressive socially. You were not that impressive intellectually or economically. God chose, he says, what was weak to shame the strong. He chose what was poor, he chose what was foolish to shame the wise. The half-brother of Jesus, James, says, "God, sh- Don't you know, beloved, God chose the poor to be rich in faith. He chose us in him, in the beloved, in the chosen one, the one who has been slain from the foundation of the world, as the King James puts it. Peter says that he was foreknown this Lamb who was to be slain. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has now been made manifest for our sake. He is the elect one, the chosen one from the foundation. In him, we have been joined with his election. We are made to share in his election. And this is, This predestination surrounds Jesus and God's plan for the cosmos in Jesus. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We do have a secret and hidden wisdom the world doesn't know, which God has decreed, literally, which God has predestined before the ages for our glory. God has an eternal plan chosen in Christ and us with him. He has predestined this plan. And we are wrapped up in that predestination. Look how Peter says it in his Sermon on the Mount, or Sermon on the Mount, his Sermon at Pentecost. (laughs) Not quite the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) For truly, Peter says this, in the city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles... And the peoples of Israel, who's to blame for Christ's crucifixion? The Romans, the Gentiles, and Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was God's eternal predestined plan. And now we find ourselves to have been included in that all along. It's as if Paul's saying you've been taken up into God's grand eternal purpose to put the whole cosmos back together again and to bring it to its beautiful fulfillment in Christ and it's already happening in you. And it's the work of God. God's will is the determinative factor here. Just as Paul's apostleship, verse 1, is based on the will of God, so our calling and salvation depends on the will of God. It's repeated multiple times. Verse 5, according to his good pleasure of his will, literally, good pleasure. Verse 9, He had made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ, or verse 11, according to his purpose, which works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is determinative of your destiny, determinative of your future, determinative of your hope? It's not the will of men. It's the will of God. It's not to say your will doesn't play a role. It's not to say that your will isn't significant. But the determining factor, Paul says, of this good outcome is the will of God. It is his initiative, his work. It is his freedom, his good pleasure to do this. And far from being a mechanical operation of some kind of faceless fate, notice what it says here in verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, in love he predestined us. I love what Paul will go on to say in chapter 2 when he says, because of the great love with which he loved us. From the beginning he foreknew us or foreloved us. He knew us the way Adam knew Eve before we even existed. He set his love upon us. And what is this great destiny for which we've been chosen? Well, we just read it in verse 4. It's to be holy and blameless. Can you imagine that? We, me, I will be holy and blameless before the presence of God? That is my destiny. This is how Paul puts it to the Romans. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is our destiny, to be conformed to the image of Christ And fully. We are also predestined, quite explicitly here in verse 5, for adoption. We are predestined to be brought home. We were orphans in this fractured, broken world. But the Father purposed to have us come home. And he's brought us home. Specifically, it says he adopted us as sons. That's not the Bible being sexist. That's because sons in the ancient world were the only ones who received an inheritance. You're adopted as a son. You have sonship because you all, men and women in Christ, are heirs. That's what he, exactly what he says in verse 11, isn't it? In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. You have been predestined for an inheritance that Paul says is a weight of glory that I cannot comprehend, that no amount of suffering in this life can even begin to compare to the inheritance that belongs to the God of the universe, that belongs to the Son, and belongs now to me, having been predestined in love. Well, how are we going to get there from here? I mean, I look at my life, and I don't see this cosmic inheritance happening (laughs) I don't see holiness and blamelessness before him well how do we get from the shattered image of God that I still carry to the reintegrated image of God in Christ how will I be made fit for so weighty of a glory as the inheritance of Christ himself how will I be suited for that how will I bear that Well, the answer is in verse 7, the continued blessings in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished. Redemption speaks of a loosing. Another way to put it, a liberation. A liberation from debt a debt I cannot pay, and liberation from a kind of enslavement. In the case of sin, Christ has redeemed us from both the debt of sin, which was uh, crushing debt, and its merciless dehumanizing enslavement. All through the precious blood of Christ, I have been liberated. Liberated. Having been forgiven, I'm free from the bonds of guilt and condemnation and their psychologically and spiritually adverse effects. I am also loosed, as we'll see, from the spiritual powers of darkness that operate through my guilt and shame to keep me in silence, to keep me in in fear, to keep me running away from God instead of running to him. I've been freed from those powers. And note this profligate language of lavished upon us. There is more grace in Christ Jesus, it's been said, than there is sin in me. Way more grace. And there is a lot of sin in me. I don't know the half of it. But there is more grace abounding for you. As Paul says to the Romans where sin abounded, grace superabounded. There's more than enough grace to get you from here to there, my friends. To get you from where you're at to where God is taking you. Now, I better hear some amens. Like, this is really good news. (laughs) All right. We have, in fact, so abundantly, every spiritual blessing, every single one in the heavenly places, which is the, the next point. Every spiritual blessing is found there. The grace with which we have been lavishly graced in Christ pertains not only to the spiritual dimensions of the forgiveness of sin, to adoption as sons and a future inheritance, but also with wisdom and understanding to, under, to know the otherwise mysterious will of God both here and now. This is what Paul says in verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. I need wisdom and insight to understand the will of God. It is a mystery to me otherwise. I have been given insight into that will, into this administration, this plan, this purpose God has for the world and for me. This has been revealed already now. At present, I already have some of this goodwill realized in me. I already have redemption, verse 7. I already have obtained the inheritance, verse 11. I'm already adopted, even if I've not fully realized what that adoption looks like. And I already have the seal of the Spirit guaranteeing what is yet to come. So there's a lot of already, but there's also a lot of not yetness here. I have not yet received the possession of that inheritance, though it's mine. My name's on it. Rather, God's name is on me. There is a future fullness of time, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in Christ. This is is a, a profound, this is the high point of the benediction here. This is the high point, the zenith. God has blessed us in, in that he's revealed the mystery of what it is he's doing in the world, which is to reconcile and bring together, to unite. Literally, the word is recapitulate. To bring under one head again, to reorganize a shattered universe under its, its right and good authority, to bring it into order, but not just to restore what had previously been shattered, as we saw with the book of Esther, but to raise it to its glorious Mature purpose that I had never yet known. To not just restore what it was, but to bring it to the full realization of what it was meant to be. That's what this idea means, to sum all things up under him. To renew all things, to reintegrate all things. It's it's not just bringing them into subjugation under Christ. It's bringing them to their beautiful end and purpose in him this is how Paul put it to the Colossians the same idea, it's on the screen in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross, God in Christ is bringing restoration he's bringing shalom, peace not merely restoring but more than that He's what the created order was always meant to be in its mature and final form, Jesus will make it so in himself. Amen. 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 And that will be at the fullness of time. These realities are not yet fully realized in earth or even in heaven, but they've already begun. In the heavenly places, a phrase that Paul uses here is another unique element to the letter to the Ephesians. And yet the idea is not unique. It's found elsewhere in Paul's writings. But here in verse 3, he talks about these blessings being in the heavenly places. Later in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he he addresses this as well. He says, God raised Christ from the dead, in verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Likewise, in chapter 2, verse 6, we find out, now Into God raised Christ, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places Amen. in Christ Jesus. This is an already reality. And then again, in chapter 3, verse 10, we're, we're told that through the church, the hitherto hidden and secret wisdom of God, now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's what this mystery is. It's something, as Paul says, had not been made known to men as it had in previous generations, but now been made known through the apostles. This manifest wisdom of God, which now the angels and powers and principalities in the heavenly places are a witness to. This is a domain not only of Christ's kingship and the angelic uh, throngs. I don't know what else to call them. but There's apparently a lot of them. Um, but also the domain of dark cosmic powers. The most famous passage of the heavenly places in Ephesians 6, if you turn there for a moment, verse 12, where Paul says this of the heavenly places, We do not wrestle, as Christians on earth, against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where are they? In the heavenly places. I love that. In that... The, the, evil, the evils of this dark age are, are located, as it were, are homed or sourced in the heavenly places, and yet it's there where all of our spiritual blessings are located and secure. There's no threat. Uh, but this is an interesting reality that we're going to talk a lot about as we move through this book, because it, it keeps coming up. It's also, I think, referenced in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, these dark powers in the, in the heavenly places, though Paul phrases it differently. in. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he says of our previous condition, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which in ancient cosmology was heaven. The prince of the power of the heavens, this atmospheric power that still operates in the world. In fact... The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he says. This is a very significant thing that we as moderns, I think, have neglected to understand. Sociologists talk about things like the spirit of a people, the soul of a nation, the personality of a society or the culture of a corporation. We use these personal terms because we know that when people come together in an aggregate, the sum is always greater than the parts, and more than that, sometimes runs quite contrary to the good intentions of the parts. I mean, consider the welfare system. How many individuals that we've talked to over the years in helping them in in poverty have gone to seek a system that was installed to help them, only to find that it's crushing That it's an impossible bureaucratic nightmare. Nobody intended it. It just becomes this. And and so a lot of people in poverty say it feels like there's a grand conspiracy against me. And I don't think that's just excuse making. There are powers and principalities that operate in structural ways, in systematic ways in the world that transcend our ability to just break it down to individuals and their causes. There is a corporate dimension to evil. This would not have been strange at all for Paul. He would have said, yes, of course, the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Yusufu Taraki, who is an African theologian commenting on verse 3, says this, Africans are very aware of these spiritual realities. And many live in fear of them. But because of God's blessings, believers in Christ can face them with confidence. We face them with confidence. Not arrogance, but with confidence. This is how Paul stresses this same idea, again, in his very similar letter, the letter to the Colossians. On the screen, you'll see it, where he says... God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We still live on earth. We haven't changed our address, but because we are with Christ, we've been raised with Him spiritually, we have been transferred from the domain that was under the power of these dark forces, under their influence, under their oppressive weight, and transferred under the beautiful headship of Christ Jesus, whose headship one day the whole universe will flourish under. We already are in that reign, in that kingdom, uh, that, reign, that good reign of a good king who brings life and flourishing and joy. And so we still do battle with these forces, as we'll see, but as Paul says to the Romans, this I'm sure of, Neither angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor all else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The war is finished, and we rejoice. And even if battles continues to rage, for which we must stay on guard, the truth and the promise and the hope is this. We ourselves are sealed for that final day. Look what Paul closes on here in verse uh, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here is is the the, the great spiritual blessing that secures all blessings. We have been sealed by the one who is the guarantee, literally the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I love what Jesus said in John's Gospel. He says, I have come down to earth, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of those that the Father has given me, those who are chosen, predestined, of those the Father has given to me, I shall lose none. I will lose none. That is the will of my Father. And I always do the will of my Father. I will raise him up, he goes on to say, on the last day. You have been sealed in Christ for the last day. The fullness of time. When all of creation will be reintegrated, restored, resurrected, reconstituted. In Jesus and who are us us who are blessed in Christ so supremely this is the last point and it's a brief one verse 12 says first we who were the first to hope in Christ that could be rendered we Jews who were the who had before Christ came hoped for his coming It could mean that, or Paul's just speaking of himself as an apostle and the apostolic band, we who were the first, that first spiritual generation to believe this is us, but not just us, that first generation of faithful Jews who received the gospel. But he goes on to say in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed it, You, too, were sealed. You, too, were included in this. The outsider, the stranger to the covenants and the promises, you have been reintegrated into this. And that promise still stands for anyone in this room. Let no one say, well, I'm not sure if I'm one of the chosen of God. How do I know if I'm predestined, as Paul says? Here's how you know. Hear the gospel and believe. And you will know. I love how Jesus put it, that same sermon I referenced from John's gospel. He says this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And no one who comes to me will I ever cast out. All the Father has given to the Son will come. And whether you believe Paul's doctrine of predestination or not, whether you like it or not, whether you consider yourself among the elect or not, the invitation sincerely stands to you to come to Jesus Christ. And whoever comes to him, not one of them will be lost. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good news, for your incredibly good work in the world. Lord, it stirs our hearts, it stirs our imaginations, Lord. It helps us think beyond our small world to peer into the real world of what it is you're doing. Lord, raise our hearts now as we continue to worship you, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.